All right, John chapter 1. This is part 14 in our verse-by-verse study. And this week's message is entitled, We Beheld His Glory. Start reading in verse 11. John 1, verse 11. Reading from the, the modern King James Version. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, speaking of receiving Christ by faith, he gave to them the authority or power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born, speaking of spiritual new birth, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Last week we looked at the first section of verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We looked at that. Actually, that was part two of that first line. We started off, we were reminded of two deadly ways that you can reject Christ as the word. And you can actually, what the scripture says, transgress the doctrine of Christ. We looked at Second John and First John, the two warnings there concerning this idea. The two ways are to say that the Lord Jesus Christ did not have a physical body. We talked about a little bit of history about that, how that the Gnostics in the early church, they were saying that material things were evil. The body was evil. So they were against uh, different things, and that's why some people are even um, kind of uptight even about sex. They say sex in and of itself is evil. And some people are um, have weird ideas, and they're celibate just because of that. We have people that are in religions that, move away and get in a, in a monastery and think, okay, I'm away from things and people. I'm away from evil. But the scripture tells us that that person just took their evil heart with them wherever they went to try to get away from the world. They brought their wickedness with them, their evil heart. Some other like trickle-down ideas would be like the Amish are against electricity. You start plugging in radios and TVs and that type of thing. Guns, for example, if a gun was laying there, the gun in and of itself is evil, like it's going to jump up and shoot somebody by itself. That's the, it's the intent of the heart of getting that and killing somebody with it, or a knife, or a hammer, or anything else. So things are evil. That was the idea. So they said, well, Christ, if he's this holy one, how would he have this holy body, you know, this, this physical body? So they associated evil with the, the physical material things. They were saying also that he was like, a ghost or a phantom or something, an aberration. I'm not sure how it was, but you know they could they could hear him, see him, and different things. But they they just said he didn't have a body. If you don't have a body, you don't have a resurrection. You don't have a virgin birth either. The other thing is uh, is to blow it on his deity to say that he is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, pop up on our minds right away. They deny that. But really, there's more religions denominations that do in their implications of the doctrine of Christ that they have. They end up having a false Christ by kind of taking away some of God's attributes and saying that he's not holy, he's not sovereign, he's not just, he's not righteous. All you got to do is start dissecting and throwing out attributes 
and you've destroyed the fact that God is God. People form a God of their own imagination. They go to like a spiritual buffet and they assemble a God that suits them. So those are the two ways, no body, no God. We talked about the, also last week, the doctrine of uh, the incarnation, which means God taking on flesh. That's what the incarnation is. So in that, we talked about the virgin birth of Christ, what that was and why that was necessary to bypass the sin of Adam so that Christ didn't have a sin nature. We also, in that, talked about the eternal existence of Christ. How that if the Word was eternal and He was made flesh, then then we know He pre-existed before He came in Bethlehem. So we talked some about that, which we've talked about many times before. We mentioned, uh, I just said a second ago, talked about the doctrine of Christ, not to transgress the doctrine of Christ. We mentioned that there in First and Second John, it just mentioned this idea of the error of Christ not having a body. That's not the only error that would be considered transgressing the doctrine of Christ. Anything that has to do with the person and work of Christ, if you pervert that, you're transgressing the doctrine of Christ. So in other words, the gospel. When the gospel is perverted, the doctrine of Christ is perverted. They're synonyms. We spent most of our time last week talking about why the word was made flesh for the reason to die and become a sacrifice, to redeem us from our sin. So today we want to look at the second part of that verse, verse 14, which says, We beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Further proof of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us to fix our problem is our blindness has been fixed, has been corrected. We spent a lot of time in the first few messages talking about that blindness, that darkness. And that was a serious move from not knowing him at all to now this phrase, it's pretty extreme difference, Beholding his glory. It's not just, uh, yeah, I see him, and there he is. I didn't see him before. It was like extreme. Didn't understand it. Couldn't see it at all. Blind. And now it's not, it's not that we just see him. We behold his glory. It's over-the-top language in two different extremes. So we kind of want to look at that today, how that came about. And we've been dealing with that the last few messages about coming out of darkness, being transformed into the marvelous light. Verse 5 says, And the light shines in darkness, and darkness comprehends it not. It doesn't comprehend or understand who Christ the light is at all. Remember, we uh, weeks ago we talked about the various levels of natural enlightenment. Let's go over them real quick. And all these are insufficient in seeing who he is. We've got natural, rational thought. Man was created a rational being different than the animals. That's not enough to come to Christ or even know Christ. We know that man has a natural knowledge of just looking at creation. Romans 1 talks about that. They see God generically in creation. They know that there's a God. And then in Romans 2, it talks about that natural conscience that we have, that conscience conviction when it comes to sin, we know that we've done wrong because a conscience has been imparted 
to mankind, and I believe that took place at the fall when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. So those three things stacked together are not enough to see or know Christ, much less come to him. Then we talked about the general call of the gospel, which is just somebody proclaiming the gospel audibly to a person, to their physical ear, without the Holy Spirit convicting them. And we know all kind of people hear that general call. He preached the gospel indiscriminately to, to every creature, the scripture says. And we don't know what the results are going to be. It's not the effectual call that's called the general call when you just scatter the seed of the gospel. And the effectual call is what we learned about in verse 13, talking about being born of God. That's when God gives life and wakes a sinner up. So natural thought, natural knowledge of creation, natural conscious conviction with the general call, all those are not enough to come to Christ without the Holy Spirit waking a person up so that they can see who Christ is, so that we may behold his glory. Before that happens, we're not going to behold anything except for the insides of our eyelids in their dark, spiritually speaking. And here today, when we start talking about glory, I want to look at two aspects of glory. One we're going to spend less time on. The first one we will spend less time on. But these are attributed to being born of God and given faith or eyes to see. And you will see these things. First, his glory in his, his deity, just his open deity. How that, you know, I had mentioned, I think Isaiah talks about in several other different places that Christ, when he walked the earth, to look at him, he was not, he didn't have a halo. But to look at him, he wasn't what people expected to be the Jewish Messiah. The red carpet wasn't rolled out for him. Just to look at him, he didn't look like anything special. He looked common. And uh, in Isaiah, it talks about there was no beauty when he looked at him. There was no beauty when he was when he was looked at. So he didn't stand out among the crowd as like, he, there's a thousand people. I see him. He's in there. That's God. I can see him a hundred feet away. It's, it wasn't like that at all. He's just like anybody else, physically looking outwardly. So his deity, we'll talk about a few things when we look at verses. He he showed little snapshots of his deity here and there. And sometimes he even talked about it. And uh, we'll look at a few of those. Let me give you one, for example. When we looked at, uh, I think it was John 18, it's been a while, and they were coming after him to collect him, to crucify him. In his big crowd, they were carrying swords, spears, and staves, I don't know the name, some kind of tools. It was a, it was a mob, you know, and they were coming, they were murmuring, and they're thinking, oh, we're going to get this guy, we're going to get rid of him, tired of, sick of hearing him, you know, that he's upsetting our religion. And uh, it was a conspiracy between the Jews and the Romans and just the whole deal. They were against him. And they, so they went after him and they found him. Judas was with them, you know, of course, to, to betray him. And they said, one of the representatives said something like, are you Jesus or the Christ or, or however it was said? And he said, I am, which is one of his names. It means the eternal present. That's referring to his deity right there. And when he said, I am, they, it was like dominoes. Just it was probably crazy looking. I would love to have seen it. Just the whole crowd just fell backwards. It fell back as they were dead. 
It was like in a movie, like when you see something happen and everybody freezes and they start talking about something. And then everybody starts going back. Well, this is the way it was. They're on the ground and then the like the narrator of, of some of these gospels were saying, you know, this just happened. And then they got up and then it's like they didn't even understand what he said. And they just kind of went back to their ravenous ways of hatred toward him. It w- It wasn't apparent to them like wow, this is God, he just knocked us out. <laughs> so there, there's a hiding of his deity among people when he, when he was on the earth. Al read some stuff there in uh, Philippians 2 about how he humbled himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant. And, and there's that idea there. He, he had the divine right to like step down on the scene and say, all right, back off, everybody. I'm God. I'm going to tell you how it is. And this is, these are the things I want. <laughs> You know, and start naming stuff like if he would go into a town, I'm going to need a limo. I'm going to need a cook. You know, he didn't do that. He just was born in a humble situation in a barn and didn't have a place. He, he told the other disciples, said, we want to come follow you. He said, I don't got a place to sleep. The foxes have dens and, and this, that, and the other. I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't know that you want to come follow me. And that's the way he was. You know, nothing fancy. So there was a suppression, a self-suppression of his deity. Some theologians call that, that he emptied out temporarily that divine right to display himself openly, always, that he is God. He humbled himself, in other words. And I had mentioned several times that I, I don't understand that as a human being, because as human beings, we're always wanting what's for number one, right? We're so proud, that's, that's the way we are. But think of the extreme. This is, this is God in the flesh coming down. Stepping down off of his eternal throne to dwell among sinners. And he's holy. This is the one that these angels flew around his throne. The three wings. Two to cover their eyes. Two to fly with and two to cover their feet because they thought they were going to be consumed. Flying around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. This is who this was. That stepped down off of that throne and dwelt among unholy, ungodly people. So you're talking about extreme differences, contrasts. So his deity, his natural deity as God, is part of his glory. Secondly, what we're going to get into, which I think is more important to us, as far as our problem needing to be rescued, is the glory in redemption as he was the God-man mediator. His lordship in connection with his mediation. His kingship in connection with his mediation. You know, he's, he's automatically lord. He's automatically king anyway because he's God. But when he did this work, a special work that he was commissioned to do, sent of the Father to do, he earned a special glory in redemption that's different than his natural glory. So we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, as usual, I'm going to run through some verses. You don't have to follow along if you don't want to. You can take notes or I'll give you a few seconds. There's quite a bit to look at here. These onesie-twosies, I'm just going to go ahead and say them, and you can take the note. John 2.11 talks about, that's our next chapter we're going to study, of course. And it talks about, in the context, the first miracle he did turning the water into wine. And what it says here in 
John 2.11, this beginning of miracles of Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and notice this, and it revealed his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So you got to think, okay, well, it's kind of an extraordinary thing happening here. He's what most people might say, hey, it's magic. This is a supernatural miracle that God's doing where he is actually changing the molecular structure of, of, of an item, a liquid item, from water into wine. And it wasn't just like a fake out where they looked at it. I mean, they drank it. They drank a lot of it. So there's a snapshot of, uh, of some hints. This is out of the ordinary. This is, this is God. This is showing his deity a little bit. Go ahead and turn to uh, Hebrews 11, verse 3. I want to give us a, a kind of a preparatory verse and go to another verse connected to it. This is about uh, creation. And I want us to see something about faith and creation. You know, that's, Hebrews 11 has been called the faith chapter. And in verse 3, it, it tells how we understand or believe that the earth was created. It, it doesn't say anything about here that we get this kit that teaches us how to dig up fossils. We can count the little ribs on the fossil or cut down a tree and, and or, or cut open a petrified bug or look at carbon dating. It doesn't say any of that. It says this, Hebrews 11.3, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. So here is, this is called presuppositional apologetics. This is, we presuppose by faith because we believe what God says about it. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just like we believe in the first couple of verses of the chapter we're studying. In the beginning was the word, the word was God. And there was nothing made except for this one that made it. So by faith, we understand these things. So you can, you can get a guy, and you can run him down here to the uh, Creation Institute, run him through that ark and have him buy books in the library and be convinced that there is a God in heaven that created and still not be converted to the gospel. He's converted a lost creationist unless he has faith that not only believes the gospel, but believes God said that he created the world. That's, that's easy. If he saved a sinner like me and did the new creation thing in me, creating the world's nothing. He spoke it into existence. Now, go to Revelation chapter 4. I want us to see some glory connected to the creation. I mean, I think we already knew that there's glory connected to the, the creation. When you go on vacations, you look at pictures, and you just look at stuff, and it's like, Dag on, uh, that's pretty vast. Uh, whether it be ocean or a mountain or water or, or whatever, the seven wonders of the world, things like that. But here in Revelation 4, verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, what? To receive glory and honor and power. Why? The word for means because you have created all things. And for your pleasure, they are and were created. 
Reminds me of that text in uh, Colossians. Everything was created by him and for him. Colossians 1.16. But here it says that he's worthy to receive glory for doing this. Again, it shows it's a reflection of his deity, right? Shows that he is God. Only God can create something out of nothing. So I think it's kind of a no-brainer. And again, you can be convinced that somebody named Jesus, it says in the scripture, you can read it black and white, it says that the scripture says that he created the world. You can believe that and still not be converted because if you reject the cross, what good is the creation? So now we're going to get into the, the crux of the matter, the, the gospel issue here. Turn to John chapter 17. Start going into the glory of re, his redemption, his redemptive character, his mediatorial lordship. He's lord and king as mediator. And it is an earned or a merited glory by going through what he went through, by humbling himself and then accomplishing what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. John 17.1 Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes unto heaven. He said, Father, the hour is come. This is, this is what the whole world was created for right now. That's what he's saying. What's going to happen in this hour? Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. This is the eternal son of God praying to the father. And the most important thing he says is, world, you know, everything's created for this moment right here. What's going to happen? What's it for? For your glory. God's chief concern is his own glory. This was planned from eternity. From all eternity for this hour to come and to glorify the Father and the Son. And I, I'm pretty sure the prayer of Christ is going to be answered. It, it always is. Verse 2, even as you have given him authority, this is Christ talking to the Father when he says given him authority. He's talking about himself. Could just say, given me authority over all flesh so that he should give eternal life to as, uh, to all you have given him. He's talking about the elect. God the Father in the covenant of grace before time gave the elect to Christ as his responsibility. And he took on that responsibility to do what he had to do to redeem them. Verse 3, and this is life eternal that they may know you. These ones that the Father gave him, eternal life is that those people may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I, Christ speaking, I have glorified you on the earth. Remember that was his mission. He, he, was, he said, I'm here to do my Father's will. He's always talking about his Father, glorifying his Father. I have finished the work you've given me to do. So all the things that he was born under the law, born of a woman, to keep the law, to do all the things required of God's people, to not skip out on anything, to not defile anything. He did this perfect work throughout his life. And he said, okay, that's my work in my life. I'm getting ready to die and finish the work concerning my death to redeem your people, to establish a righteousness for them. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
So before he humbled himself, he was at the right hand of the Father, just in the Trinity, holy, 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 with self-sufficient glory in and of himself. And he stepped down from that position to come and do this work. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, he's talking to people that haven't seen Christ, the, like the next generation of people. You haven't seen him, but you love him, in whom, though now you don't see, yet believe. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I know we've seen glory twice, but that's that's not why I came here. This is a better a better glory coming up here. Receiving, verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. So the Old Testament prophets, they wrote about Christ. And they talked about this salvation. And they saw it really, really dimly through types and pictures and shadows. You know, they saw the, the male lamb that was sacrificed that didn't have any blemish. They saw these lambs and these different offerings, these burnt offerings, and, and they saw Christ in types. But when he came and he talked in his ministry for three years about what he was going to do, and then here's Peter and, and James and John and, and all them giving all these explicit details, implications of what he did. Do you see the advantage that we have now? All these there was a progressive inspiration of God's word, a progressive revelation to people as time went on. And now we've got it at the end. We've got the whole canon, the 66 books, that expressively show the detail of the personal work of Christ, which I'm very thankful. I would rather live now than having to go and watch these sacrifices. And, and here we've got the whole thing. Where we can, it's at, our, it's at our fingertips. We can just dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So the prophets, they inquired about these things and searched about these things. They studied about them. Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of what? The sufferings of Christ. That's what the Old Testament, really the focus of it is, the sufferings of Christ, not just cool little stories that you can make movies out of. And notice, what's the big deal? And the glory that should follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. That's God's chief glory right there. That's the magnification of God's glory is the merit that Christ earned by his accomplished redemption. So that's why you don't mess with the cross. You, you can be off on whether or not you should play musical instruments in the church, whether or not a woman should wear pants or a skirt. You can be off. You know, I don't care. You can be off on those things, but not on the cross. Because this is where the glory is. Unto whom it was revealed, verse 12, that not unto themselves, but 
Unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Notice this. This is another somebody wants to check something out too. It's the angels. Which things the angels desire to look into. They don't get it like we get it. They don't get it like it's contained in the word of God. I, I mentioned earlier those angels that flew around the throne of God crying, holy, holy, holy. Those angels that are scared to death so much so that they're covering their feet, they don't get it. They don't know anything about redemption. They had no need of redemption. They're sinless angels. We have been in darkness and moved over to a category where we now see his glory. We get it. We've been given a new heart. So we, we understand these things. And you know, what's weird about it is kind of gave us that scene about the angels flying. If you look in the book of Revelation, you see uh, different points and different times. Angels will be doing things, and mere men will go up to the angels and fall down and worship the angels. The angels said, no, no, wrong guy. You're not me. So people think angels are glorious, and the angels are saying they're missing the picture. We see the glory that the angels don't when sometimes men glorify angels. You see how, how mixed up it is? Skip down to verse 18 there, First Peter 1. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, just means lifestyle, received by traditions from your fathers. But what were you redeemed by? The precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who was verily or truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was made manifest or made known in these last times for you, who by him do you believe in God. Don't miss that. There's a faith is a gift verse right there. Faith is a gift. Notice this. And this God that you believe in raised him from the dead and what? Gave him glory. I thought he already had glory, right? He's glory as a creator. This is different. This is, he's crowned or given this reward for what he went through. He earned this glory as a mediator through redemption. It says that your faith and hope, hope means confident expectation, so that your faith and hope might be in God. In other words, not in you. So, the Father gave him glory for what he did, a different kind of glory than his natural glory. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I think you'll start to see some of these verses uh, stack up on this, on this idea, this point, that this is a different type of honor and praise and glory and lordship and kingship that he had naturally. It's different than that. It's something that he earned. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. We've looked at this uh, recently comparing this text to early in John 1 talking about creation. It harmonizes real well. Who being the brightness, what? Of his glory. Talking about Christ being the brightness of the glory of the Father. Right? He communicates that way. Right? He reflects the glory of the Father by expression, by his word, by who he is. He's the communicator. He's the logo. You look at him. You recognize that's the logo. You know what a logo takes you to a product, you know, in the store. Well, Christ said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what this is talking about. 
and the express image of his person. Same attributes, in other words. No less. And upholding, that, that's what it said in Philippians when, when Al read that a while ago. He said, it, he thought it not robber to be equal with God. Well, he was, right here it says. He's the express image of his person. Same attributes. And upholding all things by the word of his power. He, he runs things by his word, through, through his providence, his power, his sovereignty. Notice this, here it comes. When he had by himself purged our sins, what did he do? He, he steps into this honorable position. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's like a special deal now. It's this glory that he's crowned with for accomplishing redemption. He sat down. In other words, it's finished. I'm sitting down. I'm done with the work. He's not running around trying to finish the work and begging people, can you do your half? Because I, I did a lot to do. Now the rest is up to you. No, he's done. He sat down. It's finished. One of these verses says, we are complete in him. It's because of this. Skip down to verse 8, Hebrews 1. But unto the Son, he said, the Father says unto the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, we just talked about how that Christ, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here he is with a, with a scepter, which is like this, this cane or staff type thing that shows he's in authority. And it's, and it's a scepter of righteousness. It's for establishing that righteousness that is to be imputed to the account of his people. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's the mediatorial king because of redemption. He is called, one of his names, the Lord our righteousness. Verse 9, And you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. So a special honor was given to him for performing that work. Now, turn back to where Al read. We just want to see a couple verses there in Philippians 2, three verses probably. Philippians chapter 2, I'll start at verse 8. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, or in other words, because he did that, there's the work that he did. And here comes the reward. Here comes the honor, the glory, and the praise. And the crowning, the lifting up, the exalting. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in this way, through his accomplished redemption, what? To the glory of the Father. Well, it looks like his prayer was answered in John 17, where he said, Father, glorify me as I glorify you. Here it is. It's accomplished. And every tongue is going to admit to it, whether they believe the gospel or not. At judgment, they're going to say, yep, this is the one. The Bible talked about it. I was in darkness. And then others that were enlightened said, yep, there's the one. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Go to uh, Ephesians 1. So I hope we're seeing a 
when it talks about this type of glory and lordship, that it is a, a earned and a merited thing that is different than his natural automatic glory. Verse 18, we, we've looked at this uh, for different reasons recently. Remember I said that it, it takes the same power that it took to raise Christ up from the dead to work in us to believe the gospel. That's what this is this is talking about, but I want us to see after that what it says. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Remember, that's the problem. We, we've got that in our text in John 1. Your light shines and darkness doesn't comprehend it. Here is when we get the comprehension. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and notice this set him at his own right hand in heavenly places far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the one which is to come. In other words, what he just said there is, this one that accomplished this work is raised in the highest position that anybody ever in any world can ever be raised, now and forever. Can you take that in? <laughs> That's some glory. And not only that, here, here's some more reward. And verse 22, and he's put all things under his feet. And he's gave him to be head over all things to the church. He's the head of the church, remember, that we've seen that in other places too. The church, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Years ago, uh, I used to believe in what's called dispensationalism. And, and that teaches that yet in the future, Christ is going to step off his throne. He's going to go over to... Jerusalem, and they're going to have the, the old throne of David where Christ is going to sit on that throne, and they're going to reinstitute the sacrifices, and he's going to reign there for a thousand years. After I was converted, I saw this text here, and I said, that's not going to happen. <laughs> there is no way. This is the highest spot. For him to step down off of his throne again is to sit on some peanut throne. This, is, this would be an insult. He is ruling and reigning right now, and he is not going to step down from this highest position that he can ever be in. He rules and reigns. He's king right now. He's coming back, not to sit on some little goofy man-made throne. He's coming back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not his gospel. And then things will be over. The earth shall burn with a fervent heat and the elements thereof. But God gave him, he's got the right, he's giving judgment, remember, that God has given judgment over to him. It's part of this is because of the reward here. He had done his work. He's earned his right to do control, created the world, control the world, died for his people. He's got the right to judge. He's in control of all things through his providence. He, he has merited the highest position that anybody can merit. So the question is, have you personally beheld his glory have you seen yourself in john where it says light came and darkness like spiritually were dumb right deaf dumb and blind and then there was an awakening where we see oh 
these other people are talking about this Christ that's in religion. I, I see his glory because of his accomplished redemption. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 6. We have, this may be the most worn out text. Hopefully you don't get tired of it. I don't. But this is that text, I think, that shows that transition from darkness to light better maybe than any text in the scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Verses up there talks about um, gospel being hid and being blinded, you know, which kind of relates to our text. But in verse 6, he says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, Paul's saying, okay, we're talking about the God of creation here, distinguishing from idols. We're talking about the only true God. This God has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God. And it's he points to where it's at. It's in the face, or in other words, this means the person of Jesus Christ. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where the glory of God is. It's in the person of Christ. It is centered in around that mission of him condescending down, being born of a woman under the law, to fulfill the law and to die under the penalty of the law, satisfying God's law and justice fully and completely until it was finished, which earned a righteousness brought in, as it says in Daniel, an everlasting righteousness that can be imputed to the account that his people, they lack it big time. And he is the Lord, our righteousness. And he's crowned with that glory because of that. And verse 7, it pretty much says this God that we're talking about can be known by man that way. It says we have this treasure, the treasure of what's the treasure? It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure. We carry that in our hearts, in our minds. That's the treasure. Seeing his glory. It says we, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It, you know, it's saying it's mobile. We, wherever we go, we got it in our mind. Why is that? So that the excellency and the power may be of God and not of us. That's kind of a reoccurring theme that we didn't have anything to do with it it's all by grace but the greatest treasure that we can have is seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ how that God can be just and justify the ungodly how that he can take a vile sinner and make him clean and remain clean himself not get tainted by it come out on the other side and be exalted and rewarded for it, and then bring those people to himself. You know, this is about seeing his future glory. We're going to wind up here. There's going to be a future glory yet that we're going to see. That's why I kind of said, you know, in Ephesians, where it says that he's lifted up in the highest position he can be, and to come down to earth and sit on some homemade throne that David sat on would be like going backwards. Well, when we see this glory here, that this is text is going to say, go ahead and turn to Revelation 21. It's going to be 
more of a splendor as compared to some type of a physical throne. We know that even even now we see his glory to a certain extent. All God's people are given a picture of his glory. And, you know, that can increase. We can dig in the scripture and study. We can use all the means available, fellowship in the church, listening to messages, studying, praying, meditating, and we can see greater glimpses of his glory. And what's that? That's growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's seeing his glory more. So we can do that. But even that, Paul, he was way smarter than us. He said, you know, it's like now we see through a glass darkly or dimly. It's like we we, we can't see what we want to see. We want We crave more, seeing his glory clearer and more of it. And then later in our future glorification, part of salvation that is after time is we are glorified, the scripture says. And when we're in that state with the glorified body, it says we shall see him as he is face to face. So we'll see that glory clearer in more splendor. And in verse 21 of Revelation 21, it describes some heavenly pictures here. Of the future. It says in the 12 gates were 12 pearls, and every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Now, don't get carried away in this. I think this is just, this typifies something. It's, it's going to be nice, okay? It's not going to be like my backyard. It's in bad shape right now, especially. He says, I saw no, verse 22, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need for the sun, S-U-N, neither of the moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations unto it. And there shall in no wise enter anything that it defiles, neither whatsoever works an abomination or makes a lie. But what's going to be there? They which are written in the Lamb's book of life. God's people, the elect, his sheep, the remnant. Right? Why? To accomplish their redemption. He's going to get what he paid for. He accomplished their redemption. He was rewarded for it. God's not going to cheat him because he satisfied justice. Him satisfying the law now demands the justification for those peoples whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They all will be there. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. They're going to be there. Have you beheld his glory? I want to read one verse in closing. You don't have to turn there. Some people will use this as a benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you you from falling and to present you faultless 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy present you faultless. I'm into that. <laughs> Anybody got any faults? You don't have to raise your hand. And then we hear that and we say in, in the last verse, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen means I agree. Let it be so. Questions or comments before we sing a song? While well, somebody's looking for a song. Does everybody understand and see that um, it is clearly a different uh, view of God's glory or a, or a different glory altogether than that just natural automatic glory that he had. He was rewarded by what he did. And he was raised up to a special place of honor as, as one actually that still is in the flesh. God is still, what's it say? Um, in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right now, that's in Colossians. I uh, can't remember if that's one or two, but he he took that responsibility on, and and um, that's that thing that stayed with him because he, he kept that body. He never had a body before. That signifies this one that's sitting at the right hand of God. He's got a body. Something happened. You think about it. You know the Trinity: God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Eternally going backwards. I mean, you can't measure that. But all of a sudden, you come on the scene of time in the fullness of time, as it says in. Galatians we looked at last week, and it talks about that he took on flesh. And if you were some type of eternal creature and you're looking and you're looking up at the throne and uh, something's different. This one this one has a body still. <laughs> that was because of that job he did. And and I'm sure angels can see, as it says, they, they're inquiring, wanting to look into this thing, they can see. Something's different here. I don't know as an angel because I'm sinless and I, he didn't redeem me, but something's going on here. I don't know anything about. And then you got the dummy humans falling down worshiping angels. Angels are smart enough to say, no, no, not me. It's that one up there that something's different about. Right? Anybody got a song? 42. 42.